Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much that we can come to your word, your living and active word. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we hear from your word this morning, that you would be changing and transforming lives. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with each of us, open our ears, open our hearts, help us to be attentive to your word. Father, I pray you would be with me as I preach from your word. Anoint me for this task. Father, we pray that you would be with each of us. In Christ's name, amen. Over the last few Sundays, we heard about the new heavens and the new earth. And a beautiful picture has been shared with us of a precious city, of God dwelling again with his people, of him wiping every tear from our eyes, where there'll be no more suffering, no more pain, for these former things have passed away. Our last week, we heard that Jesus will be coming soon. As I read those words, sometimes I think soon can't come soon enough. Are we long for the return of Jesus and the restoration of creation, don't we? Uh, it isn't easy always living this side of heaven. After all, this side of heaven contains sin. At uh, this side of heaven, we feel the effects of sin. We are hurt by sin. And we hurt others with our sin. This side of heaven, we are surrounded by godlessness, suffering, opposition, sickness, disaster, and death. And we feel also the burden of our own personal sin and the hurt that it causes us and those around us. As Christians, we know it wasn't meant to be like this. We know that we were not made to live in this fallen world. So we wait for the restoration. We long for the return of Christ. And as we wait, we groan. We yearn for his return. And not just us, but as Roman 8 reminds us, that all creation groans until it is freed from the corruption that has been caused by sin. Uh, the question then is, when we're feeling distressed, the trouble of living in this fallen world, how are we meant to respond? Well, the book of Nehemiah gives us an answer. Uh, contrary to our English translations, which divide Ezra and Nehemiah into two books, Ezra and Nehemiah is actually one book. And it is a book which spans over a hundred years it's a book which focuses on Israel's return from the exile and Israel being restored to the promised land. Uh, why was Israel in exile? Well, Israel was in exile because of their sin. And as a result of their sin and lack of repentance, they went into exile from the year 605 BC till about 538 BC. Yet despite their sin, God promised Israel that, he, they, that they would not remain in exile, but that he would bring them back. Uh, we read this promise in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 to 14. Let me read that for us. Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. This is what the Lord says. 
when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Our friends, we see this promise being fulfilled in the beginning of the book of Ezra, that in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved Cyrus, king of Persia's heart, to restore the exiled Jews back to the promised land. But let's fast forward now to the year 445 BC, to Nehemiah. It's been 90 years since the proclamation of Cyrus. 90 years, and we find the Jews have not yet been restored. Uh, we can often feel like this, that we have not yet been restored. Yes, through Jesus, we have been reconciled to the Father. But we aren't yet with the Father. The Father is not here dwelling amongst us. We aren't in that city that we've heard about over the last few weeks. We still deal with suffering. We still deal with pain. And so as Christians, we wait. In our disgrace, in our trouble, in our distress, we wait for the restoration and the return of Jesus. And so again we ask, when we are feeling distressed, the trouble of living in this fallen world, how are we meant to respond? In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10, we are given an answer. The main point of our passage today is, in the midst of distress or trouble, the church must depend on God. In the midst of distress or trouble, the church must depend on God. And today we're going to be working from the following three points. First, Nehemiah's distress. Second, Nehemiah's prayer. And then third, Nehemiah's answer. Let's look at that first point together. Nehemiah's distress. Uh, in verse 1, we are told that during the month of Kislev, that's around November, Nehemiah is in the citadel of Susa. And during this period, we are told from verse 2 that one of Nehemiah's brothers, Hanani, with some men from Judah, came to Nehemiah in the capital. And Nehemiah asked them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, those who had gone back to Jerusalem, their welfare and the welfare of the city. Nehemiah is asking at this point, how goes the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the restoration of our people? And what's the response given to Nehemiah? Well, have a look at verse 3 with me. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah has received bad news. 
It's been 90 years, 90 years since the proclamation of Cyrus, and Jerusalem has not yet been restored. And this, the walls to this day still remain broken. And this means that Jerusalem and her people, well, they're in mortal danger. Uh, the city walls were the first line of defense against foreign attackers. The lack of a city wall meant that this Jewish remnant could easily be killed and completely wiped out. And not only was the wall a line of defense against physical attack, it was a way of ensuring that Israel would, be, would have a defense against foreign influence, foreign influence from the other nations that would seek to change their life. Our friends, if there is an external threat, the best way of keeping that threat out is to build a wall. Uh, we know this firsthand with the threat of coronavirus, don't we? Peter Gutwin, our premier, has said that the greatest defense against the COVID-19 pandem COVID pandemic has been our moat, our wall of water around our state. And because of our moat, since July, we've been able to keep the devastating impacts of COVID-19 outside of our state for now several months. But for Nehemiah, his wall remains broken. And when he hears this devastating news and that the restoration isn't going well, how does he respond? Well, verse 4 tells us that Nehemiah is driven to tears. He is in anguish and distress. Uh, when you've fallen on hard times, when you are met with disappointment, which way do you turn? I know for me, I can easily fall into the trap of wanting a break from reality. So I like to escape. I do this by watching some mindless show on TV, playing a game on my phone, or maybe I'll read a fantasy novel. Uh, what about you? When you fall on hard times, do you also look for a distraction? Perhaps shopping? Getting into the garden? Playing a video game? Turning on the TV? Reading a book? Nehemiah, Nehemiah however shows us that in the midst of falling on hard times, that we should turn to God in prayer. And this leads us to our second point, Nehemiah's prayer. In Nehemiah's prayer, he responds to what he has just heard. And he prays for the Jews. He prays for their restoration. I find it striking here in verse 4 of our passage that we are told that Nehemiah fasted and prayed before God. And what is the significance of fasting while praying? Well, to fast while praying was to give your entire devotion to the task of prayer. For Nehemiah, there was an urgency and a need to depend on God. So he denied himself of food, of drink. His devotion was completely on God and seeking Him during this great distress. And as Nehemiah seeks God, look how he prays. Have a look at verse 5 to 11 with me. From verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Uh, in these verses, uh, Nehemiah shows us two things. He shows us first a model for prayer, and then he shows us the ministry of prayer. In these, first, in these seven verses, Nehemiah models to us how to pray. In verse 5, Nehemiah starts with praise. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, Nehemiah acknowledges God's sovereignty, His greatness, that He is above any ruler here upon the earth, and that He alone is the God we should stand in awe of, that God deserves our praise. But note who the praise is given to. It's not some distant God who's up there. It's some God who is above us, but it's a God who is relational. It's a God who binds himself to his people. Nehemiah says that our God is one who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. Nehemiah acknowledges that the one who can make things happen, the one who can restore Israel, is this covenant faithful God. Uh, but why should God be faithful? Aren't Israel unfaithful? After all, that's why they went into exile. Well, it's because God is merciful. It's because of His grace. Uh, this is one of the features of the gospel, isn't it? God being faithful and loving to a people who are unfaithful and don't love Him. Uh, the Christian has experienced this firsthand, haven't we? Ephesians reminds us of how we once lived. That while we were dead in sin and trespasses, while we walked in the ways of this world, while we followed the prince of the power of the air, while we lived for the passions of the flesh, Christ saved us. Christ saved us. Now the Christian will still battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We will still fall into sin. But that doesn't stop God from loving and being faithful, keeping us in His grasp and saying, Mine. Despite our faithlessness, God is faithful. Nehemiah knows this. And so he can come before God in prayer, knowing that God will listen and that He will hear. 
and knowing that God is listening, he then comes to God in confession. Verse 6, Nehemiah confesses the sin of the people, his own individual sin, and the sin of his father's household. The sins which led them into exile. And then in the midst of mourning and sadness and acknowledging the guilt and burden of sin, in verses 8 to 11, Nehemiah comforts himself with God's promises from Scripture. Nehemiah holds firm to the promises of God. And with these promises, he gives his requests. He says, you've redeemed us before. You've saved us before. Do it again. I can't help but at this point think that Nehemiah is reminding himself of the great redemptive act that God had done for Israel in saving them out of Egypt. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, God redeemed them from slavery and captivity. And he's asking again, as now they are still living in exile, he's saying, you've redeemed us before. Lord, do it again. When you and I are struggling, we too have to remind ourselves of how Christ redeemed us. We have to speak the gospel to ourselves. We are to look at the work that Jesus has done for us. Remember how he had paid our penalty. He had taken our sin upon himself. Friends, we are to look to the cross. We are to bring our concerns to the foot of the cross, knowing that if Jesus redeemed us on that cross, he will continue to intercede and help us when challenges come our way. Philippians 1.6 says, He who started a good work in you will carry it to its completion. And Nehemiah reminds himself promises from Scripture. He remembers that God has redeemed them before. So he asks God, knowing these things, he says, give me, your servant, success in the presence of this man. Uh, This man is King Artaxerxes a king under the authority of God. Nehemiah shows here that even though he serves the most powerful king in the world, he becomes before the king of heaven, a God who is more powerful than this earthly king. And so Nehemiah prays. He prays for the restoration of his people. He prays that God would work supernaturally but that he also prays that God might use him. The model of prayer that Nehemiah shows us here is adoration, confession, and supplication. Nehemiah models how to pray, but he also shows us the ministry of prayer. Our friends, prayer is such an important ministry, for it is through our prayers that God will enact his purposes. John Owens, a Puritan pastor in the 17th century, said that a minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the people, but what that minister is on is his knees, in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. Adez reminded us just before he did the congregational prayer of the valuable ministry of of the prayer that happens in the boardroom at 9.15 every morning, every Sunday morning. In many ways, our service doesn't start here at 10 a.m. 
it starts there in that boardroom at 9.15 with the ministry of prayer. Friends, as we pray, just like Nehemiah, for the work of restoration, of people growing in godliness, and people coming to saving faith, we are to be praying that God would work powerfully and pray that God would use us, His church. It is through the power of prayer that the church will grow. For God will use our prayers for the building up of His church. So I need to ask Cornerstone, are you praying? Are you praying for the work of restoration? Friends, you and I need to be praying. It's an important ministry which our Lord and Savior has given to us. For He will be using our prayers. Uh, In these verses, Nehemiah shows us the vital ministry of prayer. And through his prayer, we see God acting. And we see God acting through Nehemiah. And this leads us to our third point. Point number three, Nehemiah's answer. In chapter 2, verse 1, we learn how long Nehemiah has been weeping, mourning, regularly fasting before the Lord. How long he has been coming before the Lord in prayer. Uh, Do you remember when he heard that news from Hanani and the others? It was in the month of Kislev, around November. And now we are told that he is finally before the king in the month of Nisan, possibly March. So Nehemiah has been praying for months. Friends, this shows us that sometimes when we pray, God doesn't always say yes. Sometimes he will say no, and sometimes he'll say, wait, wait. And Nehemiah shows us here that when we pray, we are to do it with genuineness, with earnestness, and with real commitment. Friends, Nehemiah shows us that when we pray, we first and foremost must be praying for the right things. And Nehemiah is praying for God's will to be done, for God's promises to be fulfilled. Sometimes when we pray, God will say no. And that's because we aren't praying for the right things. And Nehemiah shows us that our prayers need to be genuine. And Nehemiah then shows us we need to do this with earnestness, not done as a throwaway line, But if we are serious about prayer, then we should be doing it with real commitment. Uh, This means fasting and devoting ourselves to prayer, depending on God that He will be able to do more than we ask or say. And then Nehemiah shows us that sometimes God will say, wait. And this does not mean we give up on our prayers, but we are to be committed to them praying daily for months, sometimes even years. Uh, Many of us would be familiar with Augustine, a theologian in the 5th century. Uh, If you haven't done so, can I encourage you to read his confessions, which talk about his life and how he came to Christ. It's a must-read for every Christian. Uh, In his confession, we learn that Augustine's mother, Monica, a woman of prayer, Augustine shares with us the dedication Monica had for praying for her son's salvation and how she prayed 17 years, 17 years for his conversion. Sometimes the ministry of prayer 
on a single good thing requires years and years of prayer. Nehemiah himself has been praying for months. He's been praying for months with genuine earnestness, commitment, and now we see an answer to his prayer. As he was before the king, he was sad. And in verse 2 we read this. Let me read chapter 2, verse 2. The king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And I was very much afraid. Uh, we are told here that the king responds to Nehemiah's sadness. The king is concerned for Nehemiah, but we don't see Nehemiah responding with a sigh of relief that perhaps his prayer has been answered by God. His initial response is one of fear. Why? Why is Nehemiah afraid? I think it's because he is afraid that his response and his request could mean his death. When we read the book of Esther, in Esther chapter 4, verse 11, it says, All the king's officials and the peoples of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. They be, be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. And Nehemiah is afraid that his request could be met with his death. So here then comes Nehemiah's response in verse 3. Verse 3 says, But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? I notice Nehemiah's response, that he does not mention where he is from, nor does he respond with a request, but rather with his own personal sadness. And in reply to his sadness, the king responds, what do you want? And then notice in verse 4 that before Nehemiah speaks, he speaks to God. He comes before the king of kings, the one who sits above all earthly kings, and he prays. And then after his prayer, we see this positive dialogue between Nehemiah and the king. Let's have a look at verses 5 to 8. And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I, had, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber and make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests." Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. We see here ultimately, behind the work of Nehemiah, is the work of God. The work of God in fulfilling his promises to restore the remnant back to the promised land. And we see God using his people to enact his purposes. But verses 9 to 10 tell us that even though 
God is with his people, God is with Nehemiah, uh, his work will be met with opposition. Have a look now at verses 9 to 10. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. In our Christian walk, as we seek to do the will of God, we will always be met with opposition from the world, from the devil, and even from ourselves. However, we know already how we will be able to deal with this opposition when trouble and distress befall us. And Nehemiah has already told us that in the midst of distress or trouble, the church is to depend on God. Let me add some points of application for us. I have two points I want to make for this. The first is, as Christians, we are to be seeking God's will. And second, we are to be depending on Him every step of the way. Friends, God will bring about the restoration. A Christ will one day come back. God has promised that this will happen and that this will happen soon. And until such a time, God will be doing the work of restoration, but he will also be using us to bring about these purposes. I want to bring up two passages to highlight what God has told us to do. Matthew 6, verse 9 to 10, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. In Matthew 6, verse 9 to 10, is the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord Jesus says this, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 20 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What these two passages tell us, friends, is that we're to be partakers in God's redemptive plans. So let me ask you again, Cornerstone, are you praying that God's kingdom will come? Are you praying that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are you praying that people will grow in an understanding of the gospel? Are you praying that God will use you in this restorative work of proclaiming and sharing the good news of what Jesus has done? Cornerstone, are you praying? And Cornerstone, are you doing the work? Are you taking part in the work of being an ambassador for Christ? Are you telling those around you who Christ is? And what he has done. 
the Apostle Paul has instructed us to be ambassadors for Christ. We have been called to the ministry of reconciliation. God used Nehemiah to bring about his purposes for the restoration of Israel. As Christians, we know that the full restoration will come when the Lord Jesus returns. But until such a time, until our Lord Jesus returns, we are to be praying for the restoration, but also taking part in the work of restoration, declaring the gospel in both word and deed. Let me end with this. A living in a fallen world means we are going to long for the return of Jesus. We are going to desire to be fully restored. For we want to be able to dwell with the Father without having to deal with any form of sin. However, until such a time, until Christ finally returns, you and I will deal with trouble, distress, disgrace and shame. And in the midst of all of this, we need, we must depend in God in prayer. We must continue to do the work He has called us to do. Let me pray. Our Father, you know the anguish, distress, and trouble we feel by living in this fallen world. Our Father, we pray that in the midst of distress, Lord, that we would continue to depend on you. Our Father, help us and change us, your people, to be a people devoted to prayer, seeking to do your will and depending on you every step of the way. Father, help us as a church to seek you in everything we do. Help us as a church to be your hands and feet in this work of restoration. Father, we know that you are doing this work and foremost, first and foremost. Help us, Lord, to um, take comfort in that as we do this work you've given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.